We left the story of Ruth last week with a cliffhanger. This was the, the fun story, remember that? This is the Valentine's Day message where Ruth went to Boaz and uh, found him at the threshing floor and uncovered his feet and climbed into bed and said, hey, Boaz, if you, you will cover, you know, cover your maidservant, if you will spread your wings over, spread your garment over me, then we will be redeemed, then we will be brought out of our poverty and we'll be brought back into uh, a, a state of blessing in the country. And so Boaz is willing to do that, but what he said was, well, I'm not the first redeemer in line. There's another redeemer. So uh, if you don't know what that term is, we're about to explain it, so just hold tight with me. So he said, you, you go to sleep. When you get, wake up in the morning, uh, I will head down to the city gate, and I'll try to work all this out. And so it left us where we're happy that Naomi and Ruth's poverty is about to be alleviated, these two widows, but we're also a little distressed because we're like, well, no, I don't want another one. We like Boaz. <laughs> Boaz is our guy. We want him to be the one that redeems them and marries Ruth and raises up offspring. So that's where it was left, and you could see that even Ruth and Naomi were a little nervous about it. But we get to chapter 4, and we'll begin with the first 10 verses. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. It's like they're convening a courtroom, you see. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, almost as in, oh, and one more thing. The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. That always kind of cracks me up. He's like, hey, you know, there's this land for sale, and you're the one who has the right to buy it. Oh, yeah, sounds good. Oh, great, you also get a new wife. And the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. And I can only imagine what his wife would have said if he was married. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and to Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. All right, Boaz goes to the gate. They were not courtrooms at this time. It's certainly not in a small village like Bethlehem. All of the matters that needed to be handled would be done at the gate of the village or of the city. So Boaz, as one who sits in the gate... It's a very common way in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, of describing a man of status or a man of honor, somebody who sits in the gate. His, his opinions are recognized, that you want this person who is of a, some kind of influence and some kind of wisdom. Uh, there is a distinction made here between the elders and also those who sit in the gate, that there were the older men who had acquired the wisdom, but also those that were of, of means, which Boaz was. So by seeing him sit there, that that's, tells us something about him. 
Well, he gathers, when this man walks by, he says, hey, hey, friend, come on over here. We want to work something out. And he gathers 10 elders so that they can do this properly and do this legally. And he explained that when Elimelech died, who was the husband of Naomi from uh, the beginning of the book, you remember, he had died and left behind a property, an inheritance of property, but also that his two sons, Kilion and Malon, had died, which we saw in the beginning of the book as well. And so now this property was up for redemption on behalf of Naomi, his widow. You remember in the very beginning of the book, there was a famine in the land of Israel. So Elimelech took his family, they left Israel, and obviously they sold their property so that they could make the change, go down to Moab, but while they're in Moab is when the men of this household died, and Naomi and Ruth, their return is what launched the beginning of this story. So this property of theirs is still there, but it is in the name of somebody else at this point. And what we're talking about here is a matter of redemption. And we have touched on this two or three times as we've gone through. Now we're going to get into detail, but what it means for somebody to be a goel. Goel is the Hebrew word that is usually translated kinsman redeemer. Because it means kinsman, like a near relative, but it's not just a family member. It's a family member who has the right of redemption over your property and your family. You might want to turn there. I'm going to read from Leviticus chapter 25, verses 23 through 28. This explains kinsman redemption. They're following the law of Moses here. And God is explaining when you go into the promised land, this is the law that I want you to keep. Leviticus 25, starting at verse 23, the Lord says, the land shall not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine. For you are strangers, strangers and sojourners with me. And in all the country you possess, you shall allow a redemption or a buyback of the land. If your brother becomes poor, like Elimelech, so picture it with him in this, this explanation. If your brother becomes poor and sells part of his property... Then his nearest goel, his nearest redeemer, shall come and redeem or buy back what his brother has sold. If a man has no one to redeem it, and then himself becomes prosperous and finds sufficient means to redeem it, let him calculate the years since he sold it and pay back the balance to the man whom, to whom he sold it, and then return to his property. But if he does not have sufficient means to recover it, then what he sold shall remain in the hand of the buyer until the year of Jubilee, which was every 50 years. In the Jubilee it shall be released, and he shall return to his property. Okay, so I hope you followed that, but let's just summarize to make sure. In the land of Israel, the end of Joshua, we saw the distribution of the land to each tribe. And therefore each tribe would also divvy up the land by clans, and the clans by families, and so on. And the Lord says, this will remain a perpetual inheritance in my promised land. Nobody loses their foothold in my promised land, is what God is saying. But he says, now there will come times where you will fall upon financial hardship, and the only asset you have to get money might be that land that you own. He goes, you may sell it. However, it may not be sold forever. Worst case scenario, you sell it, and when the next year of Jubilee comes around, all debts would be canceled and all property would go back to their original owners. However, there was a way you could do this early. And what you could do is either you yourself, if you got your feet under you and you got money and maybe there was another uh, financial deal that worked out for you, you could go back and you could purchase the land. And the, the implication here is that the person to whom you had sold it doesn't get to say no. 
No, I don't want to let you buy it back. Well, it was the law that you had the right to do this, but you also had to make it worth this guy's while. You had to pay it what it was worth, proportionate to what you had paid the first time. Now, here's where the kinsman redeemers come in. If you could not pay that price, somebody who was your goel, somebody in your clan, it doesn't explain how the relationships worked, so a near relative could come in and buy this for you and return it to you. That's kinsman redemption. That's what a goel was. So we fall on hard times. We're no longer able to afford our, our house and our field, so we sell it. Our cousin finds out, oh my goodness, they're, they're having to live on somebody else's property. They're having to live maybe as, a, as an indentured servant, which is very common in this culture. So you know what I'll do? I'm going to come. I will buy this back and give it to them. So you couldn't buy it for yourself and say, ha, I acquired another piece of land. No, you were buying it for this person. It was redemption. It was buyback. This was God's way of making sure that the people stayed in the land of Israel and were not overtaken perhaps by another uh, wealthy tribe or wealthy group that would come in and try to take them. And also it would prevent oppression from people trying to slowly buy up all the property and keep everybody from standing on their ancestral land. So these redeemers, this man that we see here in the book of Ruth, had the right to purchase this land from whoever bought it and then restore it to the family. And when he hears that, he says, of course, I'd be happy to do that. This guy gets a lot of, a lot of flack when you read this story. This is a good thing he wants to do. But hey, you get to buy this property. Oh, well, of course I'll do that for Naomi. She's a good woman. I remember Elimelech. I'll do that for him. However, Boaz informs him that, oh, there is one, one catch, by the way. You ever not read the fine print? This is the fine print. Boaz informs him about the terms and conditions that you also have to marry this woman, Ruth, and raise up offspring for the name of her, of, uh, her widow. Or I guess she'd be the widow in that case, right? Her late husband. And to raise up a name for the dead is what it says literally. Now, this is combining kinsman redemption with another principle from the law, which is called leveret marriage. Again, we've touched on it, but let's go back to it. The word levir in Hebrew means brother-in-law. So Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 through 10, says, If brothers dwell together, and, and I think what Ruth is showing us, this does not have to be you know, actual blood brothers. This could be a brother, meaning more broadly a cousin, another sort of relative. If brothers dwell together, and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. And if the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate, there it is, to the elders and say, my husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of his city shall call him and speak to him. And if he persists, saying, I do not wish to take her, then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders, pull his sandal off his foot, and spit in his face. And she shall answer and say, So shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And the name of his house shall be called in Israel, the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. Okay. So, now, this sounds silly to us, because we deal in a transactional culture. This is an honor-shame culture, and something like having your last name changed to the rotten scoundrel that wouldn't take care of his sister-in-law, <laughs> and knowing that you were one that refused to do that, it would have mattered, right? So let's summarize this here. If you get married, if you're a man and you marry a woman, and you die and you don't have any sons to perpetuate your name, 
your brother-in-law, or sorry, your actual brother, would come in, marry your wife, and raise up children. But the first child, so if your name was, I don't know, we'll, we'll just use Flintstones analogy here. So if your name is Fred and your brother's name was Barney, okay, your first son is not going to be the son of Fred. He's going to be son of Barney, all right? It's going to be raised up in his name. So this way, similar to how the property would never leave the family, the name, it would be that nobody ever dies off in the land of Israel was how they did this. There also was a way here of taking care of this woman whose husband had died. And first of all, she's not being married outside the family. And we think, well, why doesn't she get to make a decision? She's staying within the family that she's already come to be a part of and come to love. But not only that, she's not going to have to live as a widow, which would be less desirable as a bride from this time on, especially in this culture, even more so than today. And also, she's going to have at least one child who's going to be there to take care of her. This was known as leveret marriage. And if you refuse to do this, she could go to the government to try to not make you, but insist upon it with you. And if you didn't, then there was this whole ceremony. As we just read, taking off the sandal was a mark of, you know, basically signing the contract. So she was to forcibly take it off, spit in his face. The implication being, this man wouldn't do. I had to force him and he still wouldn't do it. So this was a very, very shameful thing. In order to perpetuate a man's legacy in the land of Israel. So Boaz tells this man, if you're next in line to purchase this land, you're also next in line to raise up children for the family of Elimelech. And Ruth is right there and ready for you to marry her. Now, some people have some questions about this, especially in the more technical side of things, because they say there's no connection in the law of Moses between these two things. For example, leveret marriage is not connected to kinsman redemption. There's nothing that says those two fill the same function. So why is it that he, in order to fulfill kinsman redemption, he also had to fulfill this leveret marriage law? All I can say to that is the law doesn't explain it that way, but the historical book that gives us our example of this does explain it that way. So as far as they were concerned, their interpretation of those two laws uh, connected them together. That one person who's going to do redemption in one sense is also going to do it in another sense. I also would say that if you were the levir, if you were the brother-in-law to perpetuate the name of your brother, you also, by default, I would say, would be the one in a position to be the first redeemer. So that's, that's why some people want to say, now, see, Ruth was just written later. They get the customs all wrong. Hadn't they read Deuteronomy? It's like, yeah, Ruth provides an inspired commentary on how Leviticus and Deuteronomy would have been lived out. So we're trying to preserve the family legacy here. We don't really think too much about that in these days. We, we think more of cashing in all of life chips while I'm alive. But this was not how they thought there. And it's also, I think, something more biblical to start considering not just what's going to happen after you die, but what's going to happen in your children's lives and after they die and passing on and building legacy. But this man does not want to do this. He does not want to jeopardize his own inheritance. Now, this is uh, less admirable than the thing he said before. Because it may be, you know, he said, look, if I start having children with this other woman, well, where's, where's my name going to be? It's notable, by the way, that his name is not in here. So we don't know what his name was. Um, but, I mean, most of what we get from this guy is positive, And you're not really supposed to read this as he's a bad person as much as Boaz is a really, really good person. He said, well, listen, pal, if you're not up for that, I mean, I guess I'll take one for the team and marry Ruth if you really want me to. You know? <laughs> And so he says, all right. And, and this could have been how it was done in this time. It could very well be that this was common, that it wasn't like he was 
obligated to do this, but that anybody that had some kind of right of leveret marriage or kinsman redemption would get together and say, look, I would love to do this for them, but I just don't have the money to do this for them. Or perhaps the, you know, the man's brother was too old and, and already had a number of children, and there, here's this, the next in line is a young man that hasn't been married yet. Maybe this was just part of what the council would do, is that they would interpret the law according to the situation, which is, I think, the right way to look at it, because Jesus would get on the teachers of the law in the New Testament for not doing that, right? Because y'all are so rigid, you, you miss the entire point. All that to say, uh, we're not supposed to look poorly on this man. We're just supposed to look on joy, look at Boaz with joy. The sandal was removed, not forcibly, but with grace. Like, all right, a deal's a deal. That's how they, they struck deals back then. So, happy news. Boaz is going to marry Ruth, and he's going to buy back their land and restore it to the family so they'll be lifted out of poverty. Verse 11. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. Literally there it just says, witnesses. So that would be how they perhaps... Now, even when we go to court today, they still have these stock phrases that we use. You solemnly swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God. Nobody talks like that, but it's court language. So when Boaz comes in, he twice says, you are witnesses. And then they all respond, witnesses. Yes, sir, we see that. Witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. So the city celebrated. Like I said, Ruth is a happy story. Now, it starts out with sadness, but it has a happy ending. And they're wishing blessings upon Boaz and Ruth. And they say, may this woman be to you like Rachel and Leah, who, of course, were the two wives of Jacob, uh, who gave birth to the tribes of Israel. And then also it says, may she be like, or may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. Now, it's interesting that they bring this in. The reason they bring it in is because the clan that lived in Bethlehem were descendants of Perez, who was the son of Judah. So they were of the tribe of Judah, of the clan of Perez. But if you remember how Perez was born, that's not exactly a a great story. Genesis 38, but it's it's very interesting how it all ties together. Genesis 38, Judah has a son, and he marries this woman named Tamar. But Judah's son, the Bible says he was so wicked that God struck him dead. That's all the detail it gives us. Then it moves on to the next son, and uh, this son refused to do the work of a levir, refused to raise up children for his brother, so God struck him dead. And so then there was another son, and Judah said, you just wait until he's of age, and then he'll marry you too. But then when that third son grew up, Judah was like, this woman is like poison, man. Like anybody that marries her, God kills him. So he's like scared to let his third son marry her. Tamar knows about this. And now, according to the law, which would come later, the law had not been written, but uh, this might have been the time for her to go to the authorities. Instead, what she does is she dresses herself like a harlot, waits for her father-in-law to come by and seduces him, 
and gets pregnant by her father-in-law. And the whole story, it comes out, they were going to kill her for being unfaithful to her, her betrothed, but in the whole time, Judah was being unfaithful to his wives. And so when that's revealed, Judah acknowledges, all right, yeah, I, I messed up. This was bad. And that she has twins. One of them is named Perez. So not a great, you know, family-friendly story exactly. And like, do you really want them to be like this? Well, it's interesting because the story of Judah and Tamar is the story of a family refusing to raise up offspring for the dead. But what we have here is in Bethlehem, the descendants of Perez are doing the right thing in raising up offspring for the dead. So you can see that they have, they have surpassed, in a way, their fathers in that sense. But, of course, they're, they're not really uh, trying to you know, imply anything by that. They're just saying, hey, our great ancestor was Perez, and we hope your family is even better. And the thing is, it is going to be better. Because I had to tell you who Perez was. Everybody knows who David is. There's a lot of Davids in this room, right? When was the last time you met a Perez around town? So they're married. Boaz and Ruth are married. And all the ladies went, yay. <laughs> and you know, it's interesting. In verse 13, it says, Boaz took Ruth and became his wife and went into her. And the Lord gave her conception. Right there in chapter 4, verse 13. That is only the second time in the book of Ruth where it says God directly did something. There's a lot of blessings. There's a lot of prayers. May the Lord do. The Lord has done this for us. But the only times that the text narrates what God did, the first time is in chapter 1, verse 6, when it says the Lord remembered the land of Israel to provide food for them. And then in chapter 4, verse 13, he remembered Ruth and he gave her conception. So both of these are fertility images, which was very important to the people at this time. All the false gods and goddesses were related to fertility. So there's even maybe an apologetics or a defensive posture here that says our Lord is the real God of fertility. If you want children, if you want crops to grow, don't go to Baal. Don't go to Asherah. You go to the Lord. You go to Jehovah God. And Naomi is blessed too, because remember, Naomi is really the main character of this book. Yeah, Ruth and Boaz are, of course, there, but this is really Naomi's story. She loses everything. She returns back to her land, and everything is restored to her. And the people bless her because God did not forget to give you a goel, to bring a redeemer into your life, to restore everything that you'd lost. And they exalt Ruth there, too. Ruth has been better to you than seven sons have been. This daughter-in-law, this Moabite, who's not even from the house of Israel, who loved you and demonstrated God's true loving kindness to you, you're blessed. And now, now you've got a grandson. <laughs> now this line, this family is going to continue. And, and every grandma loves having a little baby boy, doesn't she? <laughs> a little baby boy to carry around and put on her lap, as it says. But it said that she also nursed him. And it is because of the way that Leverett marriage happened at this point, it is possible that he was considered, it's trying to communicate, he was considered as the son of Naomi. That, that Obed was considered to be her child. Everybody knew who his mother was. It wouldn't have been weird that way. But, you know, legally, when you go and you fill out your birth certificate, that's how it would have been understood. And she's so closely identified that that's what he's, he's known. So Obed is his name. It means servant. Servant. So anytime you see the name Obed in the Bible, or, for example, the name of the book Obadiah, so that's Obed with Yah after it, like Yahweh. So Obadiah, which means servant of the Lord. And this little boy's name was Obed, and he's the grandfather of David. Now, if you were an Israelite at this time reading the story, like, oh, Bethlehem, isn't that where David is from? And you get to the end, you go, this was all about David's great-grandma? This was all about his family? Psalm 27, verses 13 through 14. 
says, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. That's what Naomi had to learn here. Psalm 27, 13, I believe I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Friends, God's love and joy and blessings are not just for heaven when you die. Anybody know that to be true? Anybody here, have you not found that the Lord is good in the land of the living as well? And he also says then, okay, well then, what about my situation? My situation is terrible. Wait for the Lord. That's very Christianese. What does that mean? It means wait for the Lord. <laughs> means wait. There's nothing special. There's nothing significant. There's nothing behind that. It just means wait and see. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Sometimes what you need in trials is not strength to overcome, but strength to endure. Strength to wait. Strength when you don't have an answer. Strength when your husband and your two sons have died and one of your daughter-in-laws has left you and you've gone home and you're impoverished and there's no place for you to stay. What do you do? Be strong and wait because God will show his blessing in the land of the living. That's what Naomi learned. We've talked about this. There's four things that Naomi's been learning and remembering in this. In chapter one, chapter one, she learned that loyalty is real. Remember, she had that attitude of life is bitter and everybody leaves. No, not, not Ruth. All right, loyalty is real. That's fine. The next chapter, She's maybe thinking to herself, there's no one there to take care of us. There's no one there to help us. People don't care about widows like us. But then she finds out that Boaz is going to be kind to Ruth when she goes out. Kindness is real. Last chapter, perhaps she was growing bitter too about the wisdom of getting married, the wisdom of even having a husband in the first place. But she comes to find out through the example of Boaz and Ruth that love is real. It still exists. And this week, what does she learn? That redemption is real. She learns that God cares. That God doesn't just let things happen, but that God intervenes and provides blessing. There's always hope. Always. We worship a Lord who died and rose again. There's no such thing as deadlines when Jesus is involved, friends. Oh, too late. Jesus is dead. God goes, I don't operate on that timeline, my friends. The Lord gives hope to his people. And I have to say this. Some of you have come and, and expressed your our our collective disappointment about what happened with the building project and everything, or maybe it's in your own personal life. And what I've tried to remind our, myself and us as well is you don't know what part of the story we're at. You don't know. If you were to look, you know, watch your, your favorite movie and at the, you know, there's a famous thing they say in screenwriting, which is there's the point where all is lost, the point of ultimate despair. Like, okay, if you quit there, you're going to think that's the worst movie you've ever seen. And some movies are like that. Like they just say, and then everything went wrong, the end. Thanks for the 50 bucks, you know? <laughs> but you can't quit in the middle. You don't know how the story ends. If the disciples had quit when Jesus was in the tomb, they never would have lived to see his resurrection. If Ruth had quit when she was in Moab, she never would have realized that the Lord is able to restore to his people what they've lost. Never give up. Never despair. Because God is good. The world has all figured out, you know, it turns out when you're hopeful and when you're joyful, you know, your mental health is better and things just seem to go right for you. Okay, but if you're cynical, like I can tend to be, like, all right, well, but what if there's no real hope? You want me just to fake it? But in Christianity, we have a hope, the Bible says, that never disappoints. We have a Lord that loves us. We have a reason to demonstrate hope and faith because we know that the Lord is not going to give up on us. Amen? Amen. All right, verse 18, let's bring it to the end. Now these are the generations of Perez. Actually, it would have been pronounced Peretz with a T-S, Peretz. Perez fathered Hezron. 
Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nachshon. There's a baby name if you're looking for one, Nachshon. <laughs> Nachshon fathered Salmon. There's another good one. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. You might remember this. In the book of Genesis, 11 times we have that phrase that we see in verse 18. Now these are the generations. That's the Hebrew word. Generations is toledot. And it's actually used as a marker in that book of uh, chapters changing, basically. right? That now, okay, We've been talking about Abraham. Now we're talking about Isaac. Now we're talking about Jacob. Now we're talking about Joseph as it moves on. And it could be that this little genealogy, this toledot, is the whole purpose of the book of Ruth. That is showing us where David came from. Why did this matter? Well, as I mentioned in the first week, it could be that David had some people whispering about him. You know, David's not even full-blood Israelite, don't you? You know, David's actually got a Moabite in his, uh, in his ancestry. Is he even allowed to come and worship? Who knows? It could just be that the Lord is trying to demonstrate, hey, this is my redemption, and anybody is welcome to be part of my family, even if you are a Moabite, which is good. It also could just be that David perhaps commissioned the writing of his family story. Everybody thought it was great. And in any case, I think the Lord is using it to connect us from the book of Judges, where everyone did what was right in his own eyes and there was no king in Israel. But in the middle of it, there was this family that was doing it right. And that family is going to lead us into the book of 1 and 2 Samuel, where there will be a king in Israel and there will be a mighty revival at the hands of David. So you've got this genealogy here. Uh, if you go back and look at some of the other ones, this is what's called a selective genealogy. It's not giving us every generation. So Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, Ram, Aminadab, going all the way down. Uh, we're skipping generations in there. Now, that is not a lie. That's not somehow deceptive. In, in this Hebrew culture, when somebody was the father of somebody, the word father could equally apply to grandfather, great-grandfather, and so on, right? Abraham was the father of of many, even though he really, the only son we know about is Isaac, Ishmael, and then some others that we don't talk about so much. But so we have 10 generations here. So it's, it's selective for a purpose. You have 10 generations, which is a significant number, as it is even in our culture today, where the 10th generation is David. Oh, David is awesome. But what is often done when you see this generation of 10, number 10 is significant, and number seven is often significant also. And if you look at this, Boaz is number seven. Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse, by the way, would have, would have been pronounced Yashai. So I don't know who anglicized that word, but it's not even close. <laughs> Yashai. Yeah, Jesse. It's close enough. <laughs> what we're seeing here is that in a time of godlessness, this line of Judah, which line? The, the family of Judah that was born out of this strange, incestuous, fake prostitution. It's that story that they'd kind of rather forget, you know what I mean? But out of that line come people like Boaz and eventually this man like David. This, this family is going to sire the king. Boaz performing the act of a goel righteously. And it might be that this, is, this was the moment when God sovereignly said, yes, that, that's going to be the family that I'm going to use. When he sees in the middle of all that mess that we study in the book of Judges, there's one family doing it right. And God goes, this guy Boaz, he gets it. He understands what redemption is all about. And because through this line is going to come the ultimate redeemer, my son Jesus Christ, the son of David, we'll start here. Boaz performed the act of a goel. You and I likewise have our own kinsman redeemer in Jesus Christ. 
we also lost our inheritance as man. When we forfeited the world over to Satan through sin, when God established man and said, go, subdue the earth and rule over it, but through sin, the Bible says it was handed over, creation was handed over, and Satan is now called the God of this world or the God of this age, with a little g, meaning a ruler or a lord. We gave over our inheritance that was supposed to be ours forever. We lost our freedom. That law of kinsman redemption also applied to indentured servitude. If you didn't have any money, you could sell yourself to be a, a slave, but a bond servant is probably better because it's not how we typically think about it. But we lost that too. We lost our freedom by subjecting ourselves to sin. Now we're at the mercy of Satan and his temptations. And we have to serve his authority until we are redeemed. And not only that, we lost any chance for the line of man to extend and perpetuate forever. Because what ends all sin is death in a place called hell. And that's our destiny. Not for the line to continue, but for the line to end in fire. Romans 8 tells us this. Romans 8, 19 through 20 says that creation waits with eager longing for the revelation of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. That would be Adam. In hope, it's waiting in hope that creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. It says that creation itself is waiting for the day when the children of God will come and bring redemption and bring hope back to the world. And we groan for that too. Every philosopher, every poet, every artist has been groaning and waiting for the day. Every man working a backbreaking job in the hot sun, every woman trying to manage unruly children looks up to heaven and says, Lord, what, what are we going to do? Is this all that life is? We needed a redeemer because we had it. We lost it. We need a redeemer, a near relative who can pay the necessary price to restore to us what has been lost. But then the question becomes, whoever could do that? Who is ever to pay back what we lost? Who is it? What, what price must be paid? The answer is that the wages of sin is death. You, who's going to be able to pay for my life with their own life and pay for this world and restore us to a place of fellowship with God? There's a place in the Psalms where it says, No man can ransom the life of another, for its cost is exceedingly great. But I can't come in and ransom you. i got my own problems. Just because I'm a good guy doesn't mean that I don't have my own sins to pay for. Just because your grandmother was sweet and kind and loved everybody doesn't mean that she stands righteous before God on her own. So what did we need? We needed God's help. But lucky for us, we know what happened. The Word became flesh. The Son of God became also the Son of Man. The descendants, the descendants of Ruth and Boaz gave birth to a son named Jesus. Jesus Christ is not just our Lord and our Savior and our King. The Bible also tells us he's our brother. He became our brother. He took on flesh. He took on actual humanity. He didn't just appear to be human. He didn't just temporarily play act as human. He was and remains man for all time. So he became, you might say, our nearest relative. And because he was sinless and because he was righteous, he was able to pay the price to restore us back to our position before God and to restore our lives and our freedom as well. 
But do you know what it cost him? It wasn't just some money at the city gate. It cost Jesus everything. He had to give up his life on the cross. He was tormented and lied about and mocked and his beard was pulled out and a crown of thorn was pressed down into his head. He bled out, dying and suffocating on a cross to buy back the earth, to buy us out of slavery, to bring many sons and daughters back into everlasting life with our Father. How do we know that it worked, man? Because Jesus rose from the dead on the third day. He has an everlasting life, a supply of life that can never be exhausted. So that even though he died in his flesh, he was able to be resurrected in his flesh because God accepted that payment. Hebrews 2 explains this to us. Hebrews 2 verse 9. I'll be reading, I'll skip a few verses in the middle, but Hebrews 2 9. We see him, Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels. That's the incarnation when God became a man. Namely, Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. I thought Jesus was already perfect. Yeah, but perfect can also mean complete or sufficient. In order for Jesus to become our redeemer, he needed to suffer in our place. And that made him, perfected him, you might say, in that role that he now plays as our intercessor. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them, us, brothers. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood... He himself likewise partook of the same things. Jesus took on flesh and blood. That through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Jesus became our kinsman so he could become our redeemer. And that is exactly what he paid for on the cross with his own precious blood. God the Son is not ashamed to be called your brother. That is true selfless redemption. I'll give up everything. I have the right to sit here and be the son of God for all eternity, one with the Father and the Spirit, existing in perpetual, everlasting eternity, and send these foolish creatures off to eternal torment where they belong. But instead, I'll lower myself. I will get down on their level. I will become one of them. I will live among them. I will cry and experience pain and hunger and thirst and heartbreak for them. I'll bleed out in the most painful death they've ever concocted so that I can return from the grave and open up the door to invite them to come and be part of my father's house, to restore them to authority over this earth, to restore them to freedom in the Spirit, and to restore them to family with me and my Father and our Holy Spirit. That's Christian redemption. That's why when we call Jesus our Redeemer, He was buying us back. He went to where we had a debt so great we couldn't possibly pay it, and He says, I'll pay it for you and bring you back. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that great? That's what Jesus has done for you, not just for us. He did it for you. It's open for you. And you know what that means? That means that your tragic story can have a happy ending, like Ruth's did. Because God didn't just send David. He sent the son of David. 
to redeem your life and mine. And friends, this does not just apply to the salvation of your soul. That's true, that God sent his son to die for you so that you can live forever with him. But when we're walking through the painful steps of this life, that's comforting. But a lot of times we think to ourselves, but Lord, I need you now. I need to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. I know I'll see you in the land of the dead, but I need strength and patience to wait for you. Because maybe it's not, it's not just that the human condition is weighing you down. You did something. You broke it. You wrecked your life. You were just as sinful as Adam and Eve. You had an amazing thing and you chose instead to chase something out there and you ruined it all and you lost everything. Or maybe this was done to you. Maybe somebody has hurt you in a way that should never have been done. And now you're having to live with the pain every single day of what has been done to you. It's probably a combination of those things. And then throw the human condition in on top of that. And now we have people walking around miserable, trying to bear the weight of the pain of life because of sin. Do you know that Jesus can redeem you not just forever in eternity? He can redeem what's happened in your life right now. The Lord is able to do those things because he is kind and he loves you. And you might think, well, if I had faith, God would do it, but all I do is sit around and complain and I'm just not even sure. Yeah, do you remember Naomi back in chapter one? Hey, it's Naomi. Don't call me Naomi. That name's too pretty. Call me Mara. It means bitter because life is bitter and God's been bitter to me. Is that the kind of person you think God's going to send down a miracle to? Well, you just lost your chance. Sometimes we think like that. Like, don't say that. If you say something bad, then God can't help you. What? God can't. God loves to step in and redeem people that think all things are lost. Sometimes you need somebody like Ruth and Boaz that will have faith for you in the moments when everything's falling apart. But God wants to redeem your situation. God wants to bring healing to your body. God wants to bring peace and calmness to your mind. The Lord wants to restore your relationships. The Lord wants to provide for those needs. This is all about broke people getting help. You don't think God cares about it when you're in a financial difficulty? The Lord wants to raise up our nation. The Lord wants to bring love into your heart again. You need to ask. You need to come and ask. Throw yourself at the Lord's feet. In a sense, Naomi had left the promised land. She had left the place of promise and blessing and gone to a different place. And when she returned, that's when God began to turn things around. So all I can say to you is, if you call on the name of the Lord, you come back to where he is, he will begin to bless you and help you and redeem you. Are you going to have scars? Yeah, probably. Jesus still bears the scars of our redemption. But you'll be able to come through the other side. And the more this happens, when God does this over and over again, you're going to stop saying things like, God has been bitter to me. And you're going to say things like Job did. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And one day, that's about this life now. But one day, let's not forget, there will be a wedding far greater than any earthly wedding that we're reading about right here. There's going to be what's called the wedding supper of the Lamb. When the Lord brings all of his people together. The Lord says he calls us brothers. There's also another illustration the Bible uses that the church is called the bride of Christ. That like Boaz went out and paid the ultimate bride price to bring Ruth into his house, the Lord paid the ultimate bride price for you, his own blood, his own life, to bring you to himself. And one day, there's going to be no more pain and no more crying and no more destitution and no more loss. It's going to be us forever with our bridegroom Jesus in true heavenly union forever.